Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here, making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Passion, the emotion. And Dortmund against all the odds are European champions. Hey, BVB fans, welcome to Believe in Borussia. My name is Tilo. Welcome to the show, episode number 27. Man, time flies. Let's get right into it. So, what do we have in store for you in this episode? Well, Let's take a quick look back at the game, or rather that decisive, and then also very misplaced Rosa Terzic shatter. And to round things off today, we're going to take it way, way, way back to the very beginning of the club. I've received a bunch of questions and people approached me also in person, and there seems to be a lot of interest and a lot of things that are unknown. So. Let's dive deep into the history of Borussia Dortmund once more. And if you're into stats, results, odds, props, everything around it, go over to our friends at BetOnline. They have anything from college to pro sports. It's all in one place. They have a new cool interface. So you can head over to their website or use your mobile device to sign up today. Receive your 100% welcome bonus. That's double your initial deposit just for signing up. So don't forget to use the promo code NFL 100 and then head over to bet online the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports at your online sportsbook experts so I'm not going to dwell too long on the game because as we all know the result and we all can probably agree that this wasn't the highest moment in the history of Borussia Dortmund either some very familiar yet still Nevertheless, annoying things resurfaced again and losing just sucks. So I don't even want to talk about it, to be honest. I mean, that sequence between the goal and the red card for the hood, that goal by itself was just sheer luck. The ball bouncing all over the place and then dropping right in the path of Zakaria, who, I don't know, has maybe, what, 10 goals in, in like 115 Bundesliga games. And of course, in this particular game, he's got to put one in the net. And then the yellow card, we'll talk about that in a second. That was, um, or the second yellow card, of course, that was a key moment in the game. Let's not kid ourselves about it. And if things are going that way for you and you're also missing Royce and Haaland, you're in for a tough afternoon. And I think anybody that watched the game just grew frustrated. We know they can play better. But with the axes missing and just a lot of things against you, 
a much better result was apparently wishful thinking. There's always crap games, afternoons where things just do not come together. That yellow card, though, stands out a little bit to me. Now, I don't want to defend a hoot or say that without the red card, we would have easily won the game. The way we've played yesterday, with everything happening, even 11 versus 11, this seemed to be a very tough draw. And the thing with the hoot is, if you see him from afar in like interviews or social interactions, you can tell he's a guy that likes to shoot from the hip, who makes comments maybe before thinking and just acts very intuitively. It's also part of his game. He many times intuitively anticipates things. That's why he can move a little faster, play certain balls. He's not the most heady introvert guy. So what I mean by that is he needs to be a little bit better in that. If you go to Dortmund and talk to people that know him, they will probably attest that Dahoud has a rather loose mouth and sometimes steps over line. Normally, that creates fun and laughter in the dressing room and whatnot. In this situation, it was definitely not helping. And then you have the side of the referee and he's annoyed and he wants more respect. And you know what? I understand where the guy is coming from. It was the clearest day foul. I don't know why he's complaining there. He clearly just kicked him in the heels or something or tripped him up. There was no ball, no nothing. I have no idea. And it's become so commonplace that people whine and bitch about everything while they try to cheat. I mean, they're basically lying to you. They're taking the piss. The players are taking the piss. Then they lie to you and then they complain about it. Well, that mixture would drive anyone mad. At the same time, if you're not up for that kind of interaction, maybe refereeing first division soccer games isn't the best line of work for you because I can think of quite a bunch of other professions that face similar or even more pressures like policemen or doctors in the emergency room where people come in and are scared and berate the doctor, but then the doctor doesn't say like, you know what? I've had enough for today. I'm just going to go home. Take care of your emergency yourself. Thank you. So I understand the reaction, but is the consequence fair? Eitekin admitted after the game in his post-match interview that the yellow or the double yellow and red was harsh and that it was a result of an accumulation of things that had nothing to do with Dahoud, but with other players, for example, namely Rafa Guerrero, who was also flaring his hand at the referee earlier. And if you consider how some of the Gladbach players were flying in and that there was already a scrimmage with 30 seconds played on the pitch, then it becomes a little odd that one player gets punished for the misbehavior of other players. Like, how is this aligned with the rules? I get that you're trying to make an example, and I just read a Chinese proverb that apparently, and I don't know if it's true, uh, says, kill one to scare a hundred. But that doesn't seem to be super in line with the whole fairness and, you know, also respect aspect of what this rule book is supposed to enforce should he be made an example of should he be punished for other players misbehaviors especially if they're not even on his own team i don't think so and then if you consider what is the role of the ref is he supposed to 
have some personal beef with his players or is he supposed to preserve the integrity of the game? And by integrity of the game, I don't mean players joining hands in the middle circle and singing Kumbaya. I mean putting the best product out there and letting a fierce sporting competition take place. And for that, I think you still best serve to play 11v11. Sending a player down in the first half after the other team just scored away is definitely a huge impact on the game. And the best refing is always when you can't tell it's there. Now granted, the players did not help at all with that mission. And then of course the referee ought to use his tools available to put it back on track. You may recall that after the Gladbach game, there were some voices that dragged that Terzic discussion back into the spotlight. Maybe under the impression of the whole, not drama, but yeah, sensitive return of Rose and then him obviously losing with the team in unlucky fashion, I want to say. Anyway, I think it's completely ridiculous to call for Terzic. Um, not because I'm such a giant Rosa fan or a firm believer. I think he's done a good job so far. Um, I think the team is on track. We've seen some good games. The defensive wobbliness, well, first of all, he's not the first coach that had to... He's not our first coach that had to deal with this. Secondly, the players that he had available on defense was basically a more or less fit Manuel Kanji who, without any preseason, just started playing and has been the rock. Then a halfway fit Hummels for halfway of the game. And then Guerrero, who's been missing match fitness, missing preparation. Meunier, same thing. No preparation, played for Belgium, Corona, open wound and knee, bumped up. It's been less than ideal. It's also very ironic that this discussion resurfaced a bit around a Gladbach defeat because, you know what, Edin Terzic lost in Gladbach too, 4-2, yes. I think people are still under the impression that Gladbach is an automatic win, which it was for most of the last years, but last year, the last game against Gladbach in Gladbach, Borussia Dortmund lost under Aiden Terzic 4-2. And the week before that game, he lost in Leverkusen, and the week before that, he drew 1-1 in Mainz. So, less than stellar. In comparison, Rose's league record has been good and better than Terzic. Yes, we dropped unnecessarily points against Freiburg and the loss against Gladbach hurt, but it wasn't that the team got steamrolled by a superior team. Terzic's record up to that Gladbach game was less than stellar. Out of seven games, he lost four, and many people had wanted him out yesterday after his Gladbach defeat. And then things started to click, but it wasn't perfect. And when the team lost to Frankfurt, I don't really recall reading, oh, well, F Champions League, but, you know, Adam Terzic is such a nice guy and he's a Dortmund fan, so it's all good. Let's just, you know, take hands and kumbaya away. There were, again, a lot of question marks around Terzic and his ability and the team and so on and so forth. But with their backs against the wall, Terzic led the team to a fantastic finish, winning week in and week out, climbing back into the Champions League spots and then, of course, 
winning the German Cup final in a very convincing fashion. And that's the final impression that stays, right? A team that wins every weekend, is fully committed, raises the cup. Mm, great. But don't forget about the wobbly start. Don't forget about the Frankfurt game. Eden was a great story and is a great story. It's a, He's literally a fan that made it from the stands to coach the team to a cup win. Like, how many times does that happen? That's a super rarity in modern football. And maybe in any business or in any industry, how many sneakerheads get to go to Nike and design what turns out to be a super successful shoe or something like that? It just rarely, rarely, rarely happens. And that's what makes Borussia such a special club. I'm very happy he's still with it. But give Rosa some time. It is what it is now. And Terzic's start was way bumpier than Rosa's so far. And he didn't perform magic overnight. Yes, he provided magic at the end. I think that's fair to say. But people tend to forget so fast. For the better and the worse. And... It was a ridiculous conversation and I hope we don't have to hear it again. So does Rose. He said as much in interviews, even though he usually tries to play it way cool. But the best thing for him and for Terzic and for us is just to get more consistent, reduce the goals against and win. <laughs> Over the last couple of weeks, I've received a lot of questions regarding historic events in the club's history, in Borussia Dortmund's history. I've gathered quite a few anecdotes and interesting things about the club um, in my research for the book that I'm working on. If you didn't know, yes, I'm working on a book for American Dortmund fans. The tricky thing is, I don't always recall what I've already told whom or who asked me what. So, in order to share this knowledge more broadly, I decided to break down the club's history into decades and make it a little series in this podcast to give an answer to the most common questions, a better understanding of the club, share things that I find integral in the formation of this team and this club and why it is what it is today, because... It's always about the foundation that was laid in the past because that history is what sets soccer apart, for example, from a lot of the American sports. It's what sets German soccer apart. The humble beginnings, the strong communal values. While in the States, baseball immediately became commercialized and its setup was clearly to make money and entertain. Soccer clubs in Germany, well, up to very recently, were founded for very different reasons and in a very different context. And just hearing that might also help you understand a little more some of the dynamics that go on in general with other teams and why, for example, a lot of Dortmund fans and also Bayern Munich fans or fans of Frankfurt or Gladbach are in such strong opposition to a team like Red Bull Leipzig and what they're doing because it's not only breaking with the traditions of German soccer, it's threatening them in their core existence. So without further ado, let's look at the first decade, 1900 till 1910, and how Borussia Dortmund came to be. Around 1900, Dortmund was an expanding city. 
There were opportunities in the steel and coal industries and they were attracting citizens of the Reich from all over. The German Empire back then stretched from the west deep into what is today's Poland, the former Prussia territories like Silesia, which also had a rich mining history. Unifying the many German kingdom and duchies and free cities and electorates and what have you under Prussian leadership, it opened up new opportunities and a new level of migration within the new formed empire. And as citizens of the Reich, people from the eastern provinces like Silesia, Poznan, East Prussia, regions located in today's Poland and back then with a majority of ethnic Poles, well they would head west to find better opportunities there. So the influx of a Catholic working class into the Protestant Dortmund started to change in neighborhoods around 1900. It formed new communities in Dortmund's working class area around the north at the Borsigplatz, which is an area very close to the large and ever-growing steel mill, the Westfalenhütte from the Hirsch Company. You gotta understand the enormity of the Westfalenhütte. Till this day, it is the largest abandoned industrial area in Europe. It was basically what the car companies were to Detroit. It attracted people from near and far to work in the industries. And obviously the whole Ruhr area, not just Dortmund, were booming and attracting people to work in the coal mines, work in the steel mill and around these industries. But life isn't all work. There's a little play involved too. So people needed a place to socialize and they needed a place to worship. And the growing Catholic congregation, people moving from the east, but also from other German Catholic territories in the south, like Hessia or Bavaria, well, they wanted their own church. So plans fell on a piece of land very close to the Borsigplatz, and in only a few short years, I think two years, they built a new church, the Holy Trinity Church, which was opened in 1900. And this church would play an enormously vital role in the foundation of the club. The church is still there today and it holds pretty frequently special masses with Borussia Dortmund themes. And what I mean by that is, for example, that, you know, you bring your scarf or your shirt to church. And I think before every season kicks off, there is a special mass to, I guess, send off the season and the team into you know, a prosperous year. And you can also find some rare artifacts from the founding days of Borussia Dortmund at the church. So it's definitely worth a visit because it is somewhat the birthplace of the club. Church and clubs were basically the two things where social life happened because people really didn't have as much time as they have today to do anything else. There wasn't as much leisure and work-life balance or what have you. People did not have leisure time as they do today because of their long work hours. By German law, it was back then a six-day week at 10 hours a day. So you basically had Sunday and there was church, you know, which made it even more important because it was the only day you could socialize and do something other than work. For example, sing in a choir or practice sports. Consequently, most churches had youth organizations and the Holy Trinity Church had its own youth sodality, which is a group or a camaraderie to promote a more pious life among the young folks, but also really just to interact and have fun and yeah, do sports together, exercise, sing songs, that kind of thing. And sports, 
hobbies and such were still a relatively novel concept in general. People didn't have time to muse just a hundred years before that, should I do some sports and exercise for fun, like go run a mile? They were just busy plowing their fields and surviving, simply surviving an often harsh life. And when they didn't have to work the fields and work their fingers to the bone, they were just happy that they probably had a early middle-class life. And the last thing on their mind was to kind of like act against it by engaging in physical activity again, which was perceived to be very low-level peasantry. People that worked physically were poor. They either had to serve in the army or in the fields, as I already said, or later in factories. That wasn't something that people desired to do. But eventually it had dawned on civil servants and administrations that there was quite a few advantages to exercising as a way to improve national fitness for, well, military service. Because back in the days in Europe, every couple of decades, there was a war against one power and another. So you needed a fit population. The exercise of choice around 1900 in Germany was still gymnastics. It was in a way a workout. It wasn't about scoring, it wasn't about competing, it was just about keeping yourself fit. It's kind of like a spin class with a, a four-toner and an instructor who would lead on a group of gymnasts with various exercises and these groups could grow to hundreds or even thousands and people would meet to exercise together in clubs, which again was the other pillar of German social life next to church or in these youth sodalities or church groups. You can see the gymnast roots still to this day in many soccer clubs that show these roots in their name from around that time. Most prominently probably TSV 1860 Munich, founded in 1860. There wasn't even soccer around, I think, in Germany. So the Ton und Sportverein, the Gymnast and Sports Club 1860 Munich, Anything with VFL, for example, like VFL Borussia Mönchengladbach, which is a Verein für Leibesübungen, a club for yeah, body or physical exercise, and so on and so forth. On the contrast, you have teams like Erste FC Köln, Erste FC Kaiserslautern, which means first football club Cologne, first football club Kaiserslautern. To distinguish that these clubs were only and purely about soccer. And that level of differentiation did not come without controversy because football or soccer was A, still very new, and B, even worse, it was English. Jeez. It's really very difficult to picture today how strange of a concept sport was, how not mainstream it was, especially soccer, Maybe think of something like eSports. There are millions of mostly young folks playing it. There's a great fascination around it. It has given us a new infrastructure with things like Twitch. Top players earn millions. But your mom and dad would probably still shake their head at just the notion to consider it a legit profession. And maybe you even feel that way. Okay, sure, use the computer that's fine, but do something sensible with it, like programming, not playing games. That's not 
what it's supposed to do. That's kind of like the sentiment of the time. Yes, all right, we see a point in exercising and not just working, but actually going there and moving your body a little bit, but not to compete, not to have fun, just to up your personal health. Something applicable. That's what we can understand. So in Germany, around 1900, soccer had a very tough stance with the establishment. Aside its Britishness and foreignness, which really didn't help because the level of xenophobia at those times were a lot higher than today. The concept of competing against somebody one-on-one, the, the physicality of it, using your feet, like what's the point of that? Like we have hands, why would you put it at your feet? Just the chaos you're inviting by giving the players freedom to reign instead of like instructing them what to do. They basically couldn't foresee what was going to happen on the pitch and they blew off steam while doing it and they showed their physical prowess. As an individual, even in a group setting, I think it was very empowering and very new. And it was very different from the gymnast idea of sternly and quietly following the leader in a controlled environment, unisono, in a group. The game itself had come to Dortmund through its high school, where young students picked up the game. And just like in England itself, schools were the institutions where the game was developed and thrived on the passion of the youth and the hunger for sports. And an integral part here in Dortmund was played by a fellow named Benno Elkan. And Elkan is a real seminal figure in German soccer in general and a great person people know way too little about in Germany and anywhere. He was born in Dortmund in December of 1877 of Jewish descent and he attended a Swiss boarding school in 1894 to improve his language skills. And there he encountered a couple of Englishmen classmates of his that introduced him to this new game called football and he fell hard for it. So upon his return in 1895 to Dortmund to finish out of school, he and a few classmates founded Dortmund FC 95, which was later changed to Dortmund SC 95, from Football Club 95 to Sports Club 95. Nevertheless, it's Dortmund's first soccer club and one of the first in the region Period. Elkan's life took him around Germany and later the world because he became a self-taught sculptor. He worked in Rome and Paris, eventually in London. And I think he was just out there. Think about you tell your family today, I'm going to become a sculptor and I'm going to sit with artists and live all over the world. Even today, that's still a very uncommon life scheme. So translate that back into the rigid life concepts 100 plus years ago. Again, that's why I find Benno Elkan very fascinating. And one of his stops in Germany before he took off into the world was a stint in Munich. And always a soccer aficionado, he also propelled the game forward in Germany's south. And he co-founded a certain football club there called Bayern Munich in 1900. Yes, Benno Elkan is also a founding member of Bayern Munich. Back in Dortmund, the game had taken off. Also, thanks in large to Elkan and founding the first soccer club there. It had spread through the city and a group of young men in the youth sodality played it passionately every Sunday after church, much to the dismay of Chaplain Dewald, who had it on for the brute game. He was not a fan. 
And while the young men at first participated in all sorts of sports, not that there were that many to choose from, but say track and field and gymnastics as well as soccer, that new ball game became more popular week over week and the chaplain felt like he had to act. So around 1905, soccer had become a regular fixture on Sundays around the meadows of the Borsigplatz and the Holy Trinity Church, which are all within its vicinity. And that's also why that area, that Borsigplatz, is considered the birthplace of the club and why the parades always go around that circle. If you go on YouTube and you watch a video of some of the triumphs with the bus, you will always see the images from the Borsigplatz because it is the cradle of Borussia Dortmund. And another crucial location to the club was right there as well, just a stone throw up from the square, well, the circle, which was a restaurant called Zum Wildschutz. And in the early days, there was no infrastructure for playing soccer. There weren't any changing rooms or gyms. There wasn't even goalposts. So even after the club was founded, the posts had to be carried on and off the meadow because otherwise they would get stolen or messed with. So by the mid-1900s, there was a bunch of young Catholics playing soccer around the church. They congregated at Wiltschutz and met with their youth sodality. And by the end of the decade, the chaplain wanted to crank up the pressure on these players. He wanted to stomp out the game altogether. When he realized that his words and warnings were falling on deaf ears at the church, he acted. And he introduced a new mandatory second mass on Sunday, making it de facto impossible to play any soccer at all. Sunday was now full, dust till dawn, and Monday to Saturday was a workday. Remember, 10 hours, hard physical labor. The last thing you want to do after that is run around on the crooked meadow for hours and hours. It had now begun to dawn on the very last of the players that they had a real problem with Chaplain Dewald. So one fateful December night in 1909, around 40 to 50 young men gathered on the first floor of the Wildschutz restaurant in its Hall of Mirrors im Spiegelsaal, which is sort of like a private tea room, ballroom type of separé, where the soccer aficionados could debate on what to do. And it was a fiery debate. It unfolded as it became clear that the soccer would have no future within the confines of the church. Founding a separate club to play soccer was almost like leaving the church as the chaplain had made it very, very clear what he thought of the game and he had threatened to expel players who ignored his directive and would continue to play and not attend mass. Now you may or may not be religious, but being expelled from your church, from your parish, getting called out in church by church itself, that is still tough today. And even more so in the much, much more conservative and obedient German Empire culture 110 years ago. Unsurprisingly, a few of the attendees got very cold feet and they left. And after a few hours of debating, the group had shrunken in half and some of the folk that had left had actually alarmed the chaplain, who immediately rushed down to the Wildschutz to break up that gathering. But when he tried to make up his way to the stairs to get into the room and put an end to these things, he was denied entry. And a scuffle ensued, and a certain Franz Jacobi 
punch the chaplain in the face. That was it. The chaplain stayed out and the 18 remaining men founded a new soccer club. Since it was a rather spontaneous gathering, nothing had been prepared. No names, nothing. Now Dortmund, that's a no-brainer. But the Borussia allegedly stems from the Borussia brewery who had a tin plate signage hanging up in the bar. It was a local brewery that had operated only a few miles away from the Wildschutz. So Borussia Dortmund's Borussia is not a nut to Prussia and the Kaiser, as is the case, for example, for Borussia Mönchengladbach, who deliberately chose Borussia, which is Latinized for Prussia, to show their loyalty. Latinized names in general were just very popular back in the day. Think of Fortuna Düsseldorf, uh, any Concordias, Victoria Köln, Alemannia Aachen. They gave it just a nice exotic ring. They sounded kind of grand, but most importantly, they didn't sound English. So Borussia certainly fit that mold. And it also underlines Dortmund's status as a beer city. Dortmund has been a major supplier and a global exporter of beer until I think the late 1970s. And thus, the Ballspielverein Borussia, BVB Dortmund 1909, was officially founded on that Advent Sunday, December 19th in 1909. The 18 brave men who loved the game were Franz and Paul Brun, Heinrich Kleve, Hans Debest, Paul Dienzielle, Franz Julius und Wilhelm Jacobi, Hans Kahn, Gustav Müller, Franz Risse, Fritz Schulte, Hans Siebold, August Tönnesmann, Heinrich und Robert Unger, Fritz Weber and Franz Wendt. Thanks for tuning in again to Believe in Borussia presented by Online. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to tune in to the next one. We'll pick it right up where we left off in terms of our history, looking at the first 10 years of the club from 1910 to 1920. And until then, a black and yellow shout out across America. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.